The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Did I say to open your Bibles? To to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. Four years ago, we set out on a study of the book of Samuel. And... After four weeks of introduction, um, we got through chapter two in the whole year (laughs) until until the last couple weeks, and then we got through chapter seven. So we spent a whole year on 1 Samuel 1 through 7, and I'm hoping I can get through it a little quicker today. Um, That is... That is my goal. We're trying to spend two to three weeks on each book as we walk through Jesus' Bible. And we've moved out of Judges into Samuel, following the order of Jesus' Bible. And we have one more step to talk about the backdrop of this book in light of where Judges sets us up. So we talked about the covenant context of Judges. And we talked about the debauchery in the book of Judges, how bad it really got, how sinful and dark the the time was, and how it brought on God's curse. So God's curse makes what is bad even worse. As as we see in Romans chapter 1, sin, mankind's sin is not just deserving of judgment, sin is part of the judgment. So you start with an ugly heart that is hostile to God, and then God gives you over to that which you really desire. And that giving over is God's curse. Curse is not good. And then more and more sin comes. And that was the context of the context of the book of Judges. It's a dark, dark book, and that sets a context for the book of Samuel. The very fact that Hannah is barren is a signal to the reader we saw that she's living in the context of curse. Because in the Old Covenant, blessing of God meant no barrenness among man or woman or beast. So there's a signal right off the bat in verse 2 of 1 Samuel that Something's not right. And if we've read it in light of Judges, we know that. But there's another element, a very important element that sets a context for the book of Samuel. And we'll miss it, we'll miss the message of the book if we don't see this trajectory. The trajectory is focused on at the end of the book of Judges. There's this recurring refrain. happens four times. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's setting up the reader to say part of the solution to the problem is kingship. But a right kind of kingship. A right kind of king is one who is not a man who exalts himself, but one who exalts God, a man under authority. In Deuteronomy 17, the portrait of 
kingship, as we're going to see, gave only one positive direction to the king. He's to be a man of the word. A man who has the law close to him. And one of the amazing elements, as we're going to see, is the very lack of mention of God's law in the book of Samuel. It just doesn't show up. And that's a very scary reality. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. Then we come to the book of Samuel, and this is what we read. In the song of Hannah, at the very beginning of the book, she becomes a prophetess. And she talks about something in a way that no prophet up until her time had ever spoke. Here it is. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Those who are hostile to God will be put down. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. And then we're asking, how? How will he do it? What will it look like? What will be the clue to us that God is moving? He will give strength to his king and exalt the power. And then, very first time in all of Scripture, that the word anointed or Messiah or Christ is used for the anticipated king. Right here, in Hannah's words, He will give power to his anointed. So he's going to give strength to his king. He's going to give power to his Messiah. And all of a sudden, for the reader entering into this book, this is just in chapter 2, part of the very first episode in the book. Think like you're watching a TV series. Every week is one episode. And when we're reading the storyline in the Old Testament, or in the Gospels, or in Acts, or in Revelation, we look for episodes. We want to read the whole episode. So every episode might have um, five or six scenes in it. So if you watch a half hour of the Cosby show, it's going to break it down into five or six scenes, that 25-minute episode. And so too, we want to approach the stories in the Old Testament as episodes, and then within the episode, there's different scenes. But what you're supposed to get, there's a message in each episode, and then there's a a conglomeration of episodes that for the entire season, or for the entire book, creates a big message. And God's the author working His message through every episode of the story. And this episode climaxes with the testimony of kingship. And that sets us back on a trail that leads us all the way to Genesis. I will put enmity between you and the woman, says God to the serpent. This kingdom antagonistic serpent. More crafty than any other beast of the field. God's about creating a a man and a woman who will image him, put him on display. And then he says, man and woman, I want you to fill the earth with my image so that I am taken to the ends of the earth, so that my glory reaches the ends of the earth. And Adam and Eve are more concerned about themselves and about ruling their own lives than about God's kingship. But before God brings judgment on Adam and Eve, he gives a promise A promise of hope, and it's called the first gospel by many scholars. The first mention of good news, and it's right here. 
Not only is there going to be friction, Satan, between you and the woman, there's going to be friction between you, your offspring, and her offspring. And this sets the stage not for one line of humans and one line of serpents, but of two human family trees. And they show up in the book of Genesis. One family tree that starts with Cain and moves on all the way up to the entire generation that's destroyed at the flood. They are the offspring of the serpent. The Pharisees said to Jesus, we're the offspring of Abraham. Jesus said, no, you're sons of the devil. That's what we're talking about here. One family tree that will be characterized by the same lying and kingdom-thwarting advances of the devil, who are at work living in darkness and breeding darkness. And then there's another family tree that's going to produce a single offspring. And this family tree is characterized by, well, we start out with Adam naming Eve the mother of all the living. Now God had promised that in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So when I see Adam tag Eve as the mother of all the living, I don't think he's just saying she's the mother of all humanity. I think he's putting his hope in this promise. That there would be a male offspring of the woman who would rise and he would be the definitive one to put an end to the curse brought about by the serpent. Notice what it says. There will be hostility between your offspring and her offspring. He... Not they. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there's going to be some kind of tension between this male offspring of the woman and the devil. Now the devil has already been told in verse 14 that he's going to be on the ground without any feet. He's now feetless and he's slithering on the ground eating the dust so that he's in a position wherein when the battle happens between the offspring of the woman and the serpent, the offspring of the woman only gets his heel nipped at or hurt, bruised, whereas the head of the serpent gets crushed, bruised. And there's a greater problem with a head injury than with a foot injury. And this is the hope that all the rest of the Bible is longing for. The individual who would rise, in whom all the rest are hoping, who would image God rightly. He's going to be the ultimate human. How can he overcome evil unless he's doing it with good? He will be the perfect displayer of God. He will be the perfect one dependent on God. So we've got two family trees, one hoping in the offspring and one antagonistic to the offspring and against all God's kingdom-building purposes. And the story of Scripture is the battle between these two spheres and the ultimate rising up of those hoping in the offspring and the offspring himself who will crush all the evil and reestablish the opportunity for all of us to be in paradise. To him who overcomes, I will give him the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, Revelation 2.7. We get to go back to the garden, back into fellowship with God, 
imaging God rightly, finding our souls satisfied in a way that only comes when he is portrayed as sovereign. Everything starts there. Then we get Abraham in Genesis 15, where it first says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him righteousness. What was he believing God for? His problem is that I don't have an offspring, yet you've promised that through me the world would be blessed. Abraham's faith is not just generally in God, it's in a promise that God would not only fill the star, the, um, fill, make his offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky, but it's specifically related to his need for an heir. He needs the seed of promise to rise. And how can the seed of promise rise from me who will overcome the curse if I don't even have any children? And so every star in the sky becomes a pointer to the one star. Your offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, and yet the hope of Genesis is for the one who will rise from the group that are putting their hope in God. And in your offspring, sorry, and your offspring will possess the gate of his enemies, singular again. So you have the plural offspring who are going to be given, and then one of them, male, kings will come from you, God had promised Abraham. Royal, that's what we're anticipating. He will possess the gate of his enemies, and it's through this one, not just generally through all of Israel, but specifically through the offspring of promise, that the curse will be overcome and the world will be blessed. Then in Genesis 49, it moves from just an offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. It moves from just an offspring of Abraham who will possess the gate of his enemies and through whom the world would be blessed. Now we get narrowed down because Abraham has Isaac who has Jacob who has 12 kids and now it focuses on one of those kids. It's through Judah that the promised redeemer, curse overcomer, deliverer will rise. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son's Sons shall bow down before you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So there's going to be a king who will rise, whose very presence will demand global obedience. And all we've done is get to the end of Genesis. And we're putting our hope already in a promised redeemer from the offspring of from the line of Judah, of the offspring of Abraham, from the line of the woman who are putting their hope in God. All for the goal of imaging God, putting God on display. That is, taking God's glory seriously. We come to Numbers. I see him, says Balaam. I see him, but he's not here yet. I behold him, but not near. To God, to Abraham, God had promised, your offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, but now I see one star, and when it rises, all the other light of the stars will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory. Look how it's worded. A star shall come out of Jacob. One. A scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob, one from Jacob, shall exercise dominion. 
and destroy the survivors of cities. This is the hope that was carried with Israel into 400 years of bondage. This is the hope that Moses comes and calls them, we're heading to the promised land. They're anticipating this. When will he come? And then we come to Judges and it says there's no king in the land. Everyone's doing what's right in his own eyes. And the reader is crying out, who will save us from this body of death? One more text. That's a lot of text. This is the only time in the Old Testament, Pentateuch, when instruction is given for Israel's future king. And this text stands behind the request for the king that we read in 1 Samuel 8. But it also not only anticipates 1 Samuel 8's request for a king, it unpacks the nature of the person that's been hoped for since Genesis 3.15. Who is this king? What will his identity be? What is his role? Here's what it says. And when we get to the book of Kings, we'll unpack this more clearly. But I'm just going to read it. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. Does that sound familiar? That's 1 Samuel 8. We're going there shortly. Is it wrong that they want a king like all the nations? Well, and you get to the land and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, says God. But notice, qualifications. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. He has to be one from your brothers. That means an Israelite. You shall set as a king over you. You shall not put a foreigner over you. Chosen by God. An Israelite. Those are qualifications. And then his job description. Three things he cannot do. And they're all related to military, to marriage alliances, and to material goods. Here they are. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord said, you shall never return that way again. Military power through chariots. That appears to be what's at stake here. Will you trust in God or will you trust in others? Or military might. You shall not acquire many wives for yourself. Why would you do that? Only two reasons. One of them is military alliance. So that if you are married to the neighbor king's daughter, he'll be less likely to go against you. And then the second reason polygamy happened in the ancient world, barrenness. We'll see that issue come up very shortly in 1 Samuel 1. So, military might... You need to be trusting in God. Marriage alliances, don't go there. Look to me. Don't try to set yourself up to be absolutely secure. Let your security come from trusting me. And then finally, he shall not acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So, qualifications, chosen by God, an Israelite, job description, no military might, 
excessive military might, no marriage alliances, and not a lot of material wealth. Only one thing that he can do. And this helps clarify, we're looking at God's ideal description of kingship, and it anticipates, in light of where we've come from, and in light of the trajectory that's been set, that climaxes in the person of Jesus, this gives us a picture of who Jesus was. Perfectly. What does it say? And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. Approved by the Levitical priests. It shall be with him. But not only with him, sitting on his shelf or somewhere on his iPhone, but not only with him, he's supposed to read it. Because only when you read it does it transform you. Only when you read it do you hear it. And it's only those who hear who learn to fear, who learn to obey. He shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes. And in doing so, his heart will not become exalted because now he's a man under authority. He's a man whose life is being characterized by the glory of the one who's called him. And therefore, what it says is, his heart will not be lifted up above his countrymen. He will not be a leader over the people, he'll be a leader of the people. And he'll be kept in his place because forever, every single day, every, every single breath of his life, he will recognize that I am here not to display my own authority, but to display for the people an example of what it means to have God on the throne of my heart. He'll be a man of the book. That's the ideal picture of kingship. A man who reigns God's way and therefore is not oppressive of others because he realizes his own neediness. His heart will not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. And that sets the stage then for the, promise, for the declarations, there's no king in the land, everyone's doing what's right in his own eyes. And for Hannah's declaration... God will raise it up. He will, even as dark as it seems, as far as he seems away, he will raise up his Messiah. So that's the setting, a messianic setting for the book of Samuel. And now our hearts turn there. And as we do, pray with me again. Father, I ask now that you would open up our hearts. Help me to be a good guide through this material. It's fast. This is a flyby through the first three-fourths of your Bible. And I feel the pain of that because we want to get down and explore more clearly. But I pray for help. And I pray that what we are able to do in this time would be beneficial. That the flyby would heighten people's affections for the great working God who's been purposeful, kingdom purposing from the beginning of time, and who has now granted that we might be part of that kingdom in Christ. Amen. This is a book, I believe, that is saturated with glory. I don't use that word lightly. This is a book about the glory of God. The word honor is exactly the same word, also translated elsewhere, as glory. It means heaviness or weightiness. 
So God's glory is His weightiness, His heaviness. There's something distinct about Him in contrast to everything else that demands worth. There's a weightiness about His presence, a weightiness about His words, so that when I put them in the scale, man's words don't compare to his words. His are so much more heavy, so much more significant, so much more substantial. And the call is, will you bring God glory? The world is filled with people who have fallen short of his glory. And yet we're called to whether we eat or drink, whether with orange juice, or French toast, or a burrito, or whatever we do, to give Him glory. We're not giving Him something that He doesn't already have. We're simply recognizing it. We're adoring it. We're treasuring it. We're treating God as absolutely weighty. The theme verse, I believe, that captures the thesis of this book is 1 Samuel 2, verse 30. So if you will, turn and look with me there. Starting toward the end of this verse, it says, Far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. The word there is glory. Those who glorify me, I will glorify. But those who despise me are going to be put down. Now, This book begins with two episodes that stand in parallel. And I believe they unpack the two halves of that little verse. The first episode is about Hannah, who's being oppressed in a very uncomfortable setting. The text opens by saying there's a certain man, Elkanah, who has two wives. Right off the bat, there's a signal this is a dysfunctional family because two wives is not God's ideal. Hannah's listed first, suggesting that she was the first one who's married. And the only reason there's a second wife is because Elkanah didn't trust God and God's way. Instead, he went out to fix a problem and got another wife named Peninnah. So the text stresses that in verse 2. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. The name the other Peninnah. Hannah had children. Sorry, Peninnah had children. Hannah had none. It's not the only problem. It says, Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. It doesn't mention three times, three pilgrimage feasts that Deuteronomy 16 tells us about. It only says he'd go up year by year. So this suggests to me right off the bat, dysfunctional family, dysfunctional worship. Verse 5, I translate differently than the ESV, and my translation helps signal part of the problem. But to Hannah, so on the day Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave, this is going to rock some people, a portion of anger. Because he loved Hannah, but Yahweh had closed her womb. 
That says something a little different. I don't see in the text anywhere that it's a double portion. It's a portion of anger. Why was he angry at her? Already it's been hinted at that he's discontented with her because she's barren. And it required that he got another wife. And now the text says he's giving his portions to Peninnah, but to Hannah he gives a portion of anger because though he loved her, God had closed her womb. We see his discontentedness when he says later on to her, um, verse 8, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Fifteen years ago, my wife and I went through a battle with infertility. We experienced a miscarriage that was deeply, deeply painful. And we found out her body wasn't equipped without extra help to sustain the life in a womb. Mary Jane's very name means bitter. Mary is bitter and God's gracious gift, and that colored our pregnancy with our oldest because we weren't sure that she was ever going to live. And then she comes out of the womb and God lets her be healthy. But in the midst of my wife's loss, which sent her into a two-year and three-month bout of deep, deep discouragement and darkness, she felt God was massively big but not loving. And it was two years and three months where she felt God was absolutely distant. And that was not a time for me to come in and say, Honey, am I not worth to you more than three, ten sons? Whatever it says. We're to feel Hannah's pain here. She is desperate and she's not being supported around her. And in that context of deep pain, when she is barren, the reader is supposed to say she's in a period of curse. Why is she cursed? What's going on? Well, we see a dysfunctional family. We see a dysfunctional worship setting. But then we see the blindness of a priest. He doesn't have eyes to see. He thinks that she, Eli, when Eli sees her, he thinks she's drunk because she's just crying out. She can't even get the words out of her mouth. She's just pleading with God, help me, help me. In her soul, it's wrenching. And he thinks she's drunk. And she says, that's not the case. But she's doing what someone should do. What does it look like? Those who honor me, I will honor. What does the honor of God look like? It looks like recognizing the fact that in the midst of your desperation, the only answer for you is to pray to God. Honor of God in this context looks like turning to the only one who can have a solution. And God responds, and He fills up her womb with a child. And upon this child's birth, she gives this child back to God. She actually lets him go and asks that he be raised at the tabernacle in Shiloh. 
And then she sings a song. And it's a song that's echoed by Mary when she's with Elizabeth. My heart exalts in Yahweh, chapter 2, verse 1. My strength is exalted in Yahweh. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. You are the source. You are my help. And I'm giving you praise. I'm recognizing you alone as the only Savior. Holy is the Lord. There is none holy like you. None besides you. No rock like our God. And then she uses language that's going to be picked up later in the book. Talk no more so very proudly, it says. I think she's got Penina in the back of her mind. Very literally, it simply says, say no more, high, high. High, high, elevated. And so it's been translated as pride. But it's the exact same word that's going to be used of Saul's height and of Goliath's height. And then of David's brother, Eliab's height. They're all high, and they're the only three people in all the Bible whose height is ever described that way. They are high men. And each one of them stands as a foil that is a literary contrast to the ultimate ideal figure in the book, namely David. Saul is tall, a head taller than all the other people around him, and yet he's going to be brought low by God. Because those who disdain me Those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Goliath thinks he's great. His height is depicted. And yet, he will be brought down because he curses the armies of the living God. And God had told Abraham, the one who curses you, I will curse. David knew that, and he knew Goliath's end was sure. Eliab is depicted, David's oldest brother, as high. And God in that same context says, just as I rejected Saul, I have rejected him. None of these guys are the one that I have chosen. Rather, I look not on the outward appearance, but on the heart. Those who honor me, I will honor. And the whole story of Hannah is designed to depict the first half of that. The one who honors me, I will honor. And then she sings it and testifies to it. And and I'm just jumping way ahead of myself. Look at how she testifies to it in verse 9. Well, start in verse 8. God raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to, to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of glory, honor. He takes those who are low and now he gives them honor. What does that take? in contrast to being one who starts high and is brought low. Verse 9 tells us, He will guard the feet of His faithful ones. That's whom He guards. That's whom He helps. That's whom He saves. The faithful. That is those who honor Him. Those who are concerned about making Him great. Who in their desperation pray. Our utter helplessness turns into our deep satisfaction because it's the very means by which we're motivated to declare, God, you alone are my helper. So God lovingly puts people in context of pain so that it can be the instrument where God can be exalted and we can be helped. 1 Corinthians 
Sorry, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8. I don't want to be out aware, brothers, of the persecution I underwent in Asia. Indeed, I had the sentence of death upon myself. I thought I was going to die in order that I would not trust in myself, but in God who raises the dead. Paul gives us a divine purpose for his persecution. And he doesn't want us to be unaware of it. God almost had to kill me. I had the sentence of death upon myself in order that I might not trust in myself but on God. And all of a sudden for Hannah, the context of curse is becoming the agent of blessing. Because it's, it's, it's moving her, it's motivating her to turn to God. And in Leviticus 26, that's what God says the curses were designed to do. If you turn from me and run from me, I will throw curse upon you. And if you don't respond to me in that moment, seven more times deeper, I will throw curse on you. And if you don't return to me then, then I will put more curse on you. Five times, he says in Leviticus 26, that the purpose of the curse is to bring people to repentance, to bring people to recognize their neediness, to turn to God and say, I need you. And it worked for Hannah. She says, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, verse 9, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall man prevail. The the adversaries of Yahweh shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his Messiah. So she's saying in two verses what chapter 2 verse 30 says in a single line. Those who honor me I will honor. Those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. And this whole book is designed to unpack that truth. So whether you're a high priest, Eli, whether you're a king, Saul, whether you're a giant warrior, Goliath, if you despise the Lord, you will be brought down. And you might be a very poor, barren woman whose soul is broken. Or you might be a keeper of sheep. But I tell you, those who honor me, I will honor. That's how I I think we're supposed to understand this book. The second episode, after Hannah's song, picks up with two worthless men. That's what they're called in verse 12. Eli's sons were worthless. The last time we heard that term used was to talk about the Benjamites in Gibeah, In Judges chapter 20. Remember those that the Levite came and he entered into Gibeah and a man pulled him off the street and said, stay with me. And then up to the house came a whole bunch of men and they say, we want to sleep with that man you just brought in. Remember that horrible story at the end of Judges that's written in a way to echo Sodom and Gomorrah's story? They were called worthless men. And now Eli's sons, who are the priests, who are supposed to be facilitating worship and mediating the presence of God to the people, they're equated with that group back in Judges. Worthless. And what are they doing? What we learn up front is that their worship is happening. People are bringing their sacrifices. 
And some of the sacrifice is supposed to be only for God, the fat portions, and some of the sacrifice the people are supposed to be able to enjoy and eat their own so that as people come to the presence of the great king, he invites them to stick around and enjoy his presence and eat at his table. That's how the sacrifices work. But the priests are not only eating the fat portions that are designed for God, they're also taking out of the boiling pot any piece they want and denying the people from the opportunity to eat their portion in the presence of the king. And God is angry. And what's happening is that, hear this word, let me point to it so that you can see that it's happening. I'm going to set it up here. Look at verse 29 of chapter 2. God confronts Eli, the father, for not dealing with his sons. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded? And what is he doing in letting them persist in their disobedience? He's honoring, there's our word, honoring your sons above me by fattening who? By letting them get fat. No. By fattening yourselves. Eli is participating as the father. He's actually eating the same things that his sons are doing disdainfully. He's participating in the eating. He's honoring his sons more than he's honoring God. That is, he's making heavy honor. He's glorifying his sons more than he's bringing glory to God. And then this really comes to bear when we find out a couple chapters later that the Ark of the Covenant has been stolen and that his sons have died in judgment by God. And what does it tell us in chapter 4, verse 18? Soon, as soon as the messenger mentioned that the ark of God had been taken, Eli, the father, fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died because the man was old and glorious. He was old and full of honor. That is, he was old and fat because he was more concerned about his own glory and about the glory of his sons than for God's glory. There's a wordplay going on, and it's exactly the same word that's used in chapter 2, verse 30. Those who honor me, I will honor. And he's honoring his sons more than he's honoring God, and the result is that he has become heavy. His own body is a picture that he's more concerned about himself than God. And the only reason that I can understand that that little tiny note is given to us by the narrator is to make this point. And then it goes out of its way, the text does, to enter into a long history lesson on the glory of God. What does it say happens to Phineas' wife? Hophni and Phineas are the two sons of Eli. She finds out that the ark is gone. She finds out that her husband has died. Verse 21, what does she say? She named the child as she's dying. She gives birth to a boy and she names him No Glory. Ichabod. Ich kavod. Kavod is the word for glory or honor or heaviness. Kaved is the adjective or verb for to glorify or to make heavy. And it shows up over and over again in this section. 
The ark of God leaves, and it's a picture of what's happened to Israel. They've glorified themselves, and that means God is gone. No glory. And this whole book is designed to help us get it, to take seriously the glory of God, to feel it in our bones that He is heavy and worth following. Those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Father, our time is up. We've set a trajectory for this book. I pray that you would use it in the coming weeks as fuel. May you get great glory as we walk through and see the contrast between those who don't glorify you and those who do. When we hear the testimony of David You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. And this day all the world will know that there is a God in Israel. May we be those kind of people who are all about displaying your glory. And may we magnify the Son, the great warrior, the great curse overcomer, the one who tackles the offspring of the serpent and who brings you the greatest glory fully. May we glory in him. In Christ I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and Treasuring a God Who Rules, Saves, and Satisfies Through Covenant for His glory in Christ.